minute longer if you are able and join me in the book of Romans chapter 14. Romans 14, we are effectively, as of this Sunday, we are one year in our journey through Romans. Uh, This is sermon number 52, 52 sermons of this letter. Um, Some of you are thinking, it could have been a lot less, Pastor, you know? Um. And others of you are, are better informed. Others of you know that some of the great heroes, my preaching heroes even, took three to five years with their church through the book of Romans. So we're actually taking it at, at a breakneck pace. <laughs> that being said, we must recognize that as we enter into this section, and we are week three in this section, beginning in 14.1, By the time we finish this portion, which is all about Christian liberty and unity in the church with disparity, when we get to the end of that, we're effectively in the conclusion. Okay, so as sweet and as as awesome as our time has been in Romans, soak it up, it's almost over. That's all I'm saying, okay? Now that said, Romans 14, verse 1, let's again remind ourselves where we left off two weeks ago on Palm Sunday. Paul is addressing this necessity for unity in the church among members who are at various points in the spectrum of Christian maturity. Some are young, some are old, some are in between spiritually. And he categorizes this for us simply by referring to weak in faith and strong in faith. The strong, of course, are those who are more mature. The weak in faith are those who are still struggling with certain things. And so let's read and refresh our minds. Verse 1, as for the one who is weak in faith, that's not saving faith, but rather the practice. Not weak in salvation, weak in practice. Welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or fall, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Verse 5. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. Verse 8, for if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. 
Verse 9, 4, to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord of both the living, excuse me, of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? See, he's speaking to both sides of the coin. Why do you pass judgment? Or you on this side, why do you despise? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. This is the word of the Lord. Once more, let's petition the Lord in prayer. Father, as we stand together in honor and reverence of your word, we simply ask that you would help us as we endeavor to make your word the law that governs every aspect of our lives. We are slaves to righteousness. We are no longer slaves to sin, but rather we are slaves to our master who reconciled us to you, Father, through the blood of Christ. And so, Lord, help us For we are not studying a passage that is concerned with the deep doctrines of the faith, the underpinnings of salvation, but rather we are studying a passage that deals with the practice and the practical day-to-day living in a world that is broken and fallen, bumping into each other sinful people in the church And so we're asking for your help, that you would help us to live this rightly. And that, of course, begins with understanding. And so, Lord, renew our minds by the washing of your word, and teach us and then help us. For Christ's sake and in his name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Growing in Christian faith is an interesting spectrum of experience. Growing in Christian faith, right? When first redeemed, there is the, uh, the, the joy of our salvation. Even, even the psalmist says, restore unto me the joy of my salvation. Why? Well, because there's a joy that is, it's, 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 there's an elation, right? The sudden, the sudden Burden lifted, like in Pilgrim's Progress. The burden of our guilt and our sin lifted from our shoulders. There's the sudden confidence that we have peace with God with whom we were previously at war because we were born into our sinful state. And so there is this this peace that we have with God that was formerly absent there's, there, there comes with it this, this assurance that to pass from this life is to simply move on to the next. That this temporary, broken, physical existence is but, uh, but a, a flash in the pan. The preacher in Ecclesiastes calls it a vapor, right? It's, it's coming and going. 
But in comparison to that, the eternity that awaits us, that is secured in our salvation, is, is well, it's forever. And there's a joy that comes with all of that, that lightness, that freedom, that, that clear conscience. Praise the Lord, his mercy is more, right? And yet as we, as we live and as we walk, the shine starts to wear, doesn't it? Uh, that, that we're, not, we're not on cloud nine anymore. Suddenly, we're, we're back at school with our peers, and that has particular challenges. We're back in our workplace with sometimes genuinely wicked and vindictive people, um, making things sort of challenging and making holding to a particular Christian ethic a struggle. Uh, we get sick and... The shower leaks and ruins the ceiling for the third time. And frustration grows. And, and you might begin to wonder, where, where was that joy of my salvation? When everything was light, everything was, well, bright, optimistic. Life is messy. And if that were all, it would be enough to diminish the early joy of salvation. But soon, as we walk with the Lord and participate in the local church, we discover that while we've been freed from sin's consequences, we're not free from sin's presence. We still have a tendency towards sinful desires. We still give in to sinful impulses. We have to sometimes be told by our pastor or by another believer, hey, what you just did was wrong. What you just said was inappropriate. Sometimes it's your wife or your husband, and you go, oh, I don't want to admit that they're right again. Right? And here they are saying, is that how you should? Is that how you should have said that? Was that gracious? Was that loving? Right? Free from sin's consequences, but frustratingly not free from sin's presence. And it's all the more, what's the word? Frustrating. When you have to be informed after the fact. Hey, that was out of line. Sometimes we're receptive to that counsel and other times we are resistant. And if we continue to grow, we will soon discover that usually when we are resistant to the informed opinion of another, that what we have done is sinful and out of line, we are often resistant not because they're wrong, but because we're prideful. We just don't want to admit that we're wrong. You don't have to admit that we sinned. And then we have to admit that again there is something about our, our saving faith that has not freed us from the presence of sin, not just around us, but in us. And so we would rather push back and say, no, no, no. We took a hike this week up in Boone, my family and I. And we went on a new trail. Uh, the kind of trail where... You've been going for a while, 
and someone comes the other direction and you pause and you begin talking to a complete stranger saying things like, how much farther? <laughs> but, a, but a new hike, a new trail, you, you don't know the answer to those questions, right? You don't know how far, how many minutes, you don't know what's coming up. Is it uphill? Is it downhill? Is it narrow? Is it wide? Is there a vista? Is there a river? What are we hiking to? And, and each turn, if you will, kind of like we discovered something new. The path started very narrow, and you're sort of walking on the side of a hill, and, you know, this way is just straight down. And so we're saying, don't slip. You know, you might not stop till you reach the bottom, you know. But then other times, it was wide open spaces, and sometimes it was downhill, which feels easy, and other times it was uphill, which became slow <laughs> with little legs following in behind us, right? And I've thought about that this week as how that is really a picture of the Christian life, isn't it? We're walking a new path. We don't know what's coming up next. And just as soon as we sort of get comfortable and think, okay, we're getting the hang of this thing, suddenly it turns and the whole thing changes. And we have to ask others who have who've been on before us, does this get easier? Right? When do we reach the mountaintop? When, when do we get to the point where we're free of these sins that ensnare us and catch us by our heels and constantly sort of intrude themselves into our lives? And so, as a relatively new believer, we've been free from sin's penalty, but we find that sin... Like in Genesis with Cain and Abel, sin is crouching like a lion, ready to pounce at every corner. If it isn't our impulses to sin, it's our resistance to instruction. If it isn't our resistance to instruction because of pride, it's our lack of discipline with our time. And if it were all external things, other people, other places, other problems, that would be easy. We could just blame Satan. Satan is tempting me. But as it turns out, much of it is internal. Even as believers, we're sinning because that's what we want. What I want is selfish and self-centered. And these self-indulgent tendencies are inherently sinful because they don't honor the Lord. They don't seek after the Lord. They aren't in the footsteps of Jesus, Luke 9. Right? If anyone will be my disciple, he must take up his cross daily and follow me. Walk in my footsteps. Instead, what we want is often very me-centric. And into this, Paul writes incredibly relatable words in Romans 17. Excuse me, Romans 7, verse 15. He says, I do not understand my own actions. And as an 18-year-old Bible college student, when I came to that verse, as we're spending uh, an entire semester, you know, marching through this, 90-minute lectures, two times a week, I got to that verse and I went, yes, thank you, Paul, right? That's what I'm talking about. I don't even understand my own actions. And he goes on, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Sin is an unwelcome intrusion in the life of the believer, isn't it? 
And we were like, we're like, get out of here, man. So what do we do? Uh, what do we do as we grow, right? From, from early salvation, cloud nine, joy to now frustration and the constant interference of sin, what do we do? Well, we respond, right? And we respond by setting up barriers. We set up barriers. I don't want to indulge these things, so I'm going to set up a barrier so that I can't go here. Right? Men, you should have filters on your phones and all of your computers to set up barriers. We set up barriers with our speech. We learn to, to be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. And so we practice not responding, but instead... Right? Take a deep breath. Then your wife says, don't look at me like that. And you're thinking, I'm taking a deep breath for you. No. Uh, What are we doing? We're, we're setting up walls, right? To hem ourselves in so that we don't give in to the impulses that we find that are still in us and certainly the temptations that are all around us. We set alarms to wake us up early so that we read our scriptures first thing in the morning. We welcome accountable relationships like in a discipleship group in order to help keep us marching in the right direction. We reject certain forms of entertainment in order to feed the spirit and starve the flesh. Give no quarter to the flesh is how Paul puts it. So starve it out. It's in you, you gotta starve it. And all of this is good as it pertains to not indulging sin. Where it can get dicey is when these barriers are not about sin, but they are about matters of Christian liberty. And then we set up barriers as matters of Christian liberty. Nope, I'm not there yet. That's okay. I know, no, get, stop it. Stop pushing buttons. We set up barriers as matters of Christian liberty and then, and then we see another Christian not living by our barriers. And we go, hey, wait a minute. We're not supposed to read that. We're not supposed to watch that. We're not supposed to listen to that. We're not supposed to eat that or drink that or go there or laugh at that. I've been reliably informed by my barriers. And this is what was happening in Rome. For five years, all the Jews were kicked out of Rome. I think it was um, right around 50 AD. So you're talking about 20 years after the resurrection and ascension of Christ. All the Jews, all the Jewish, Jewish Christians... And Jews, Orthodox Jews, all, they were all booted out of the city of Rome until the passing of that particular em- emperor. And then the Jews were allowed back. Well, in that five-year period, the church in Rome was led by non-Jewish converts to Christianity. It was 
completely occupied and made up of non-Jewish converts to Christianity, otherwise known as Gentiles. And so then when the Jews all came back, they had a serious problem. The church was not Jewish enough. What we understand is that the early Jewish Christians still felt compelled by their conscience to uphold feast days, right? to observe the various days, the new moons and the various stoppages. Right? There's the weekly Sabbath, but there are regular other Sabbaths stoppages throughout the year. They felt compelled to live by the kosher diet, or that's what, that which is acceptable. And when they returned to the church, they found it to be very Gentile, very free of the Jewish regulations, and they were concerned that this was giving way to sin. Now, in some manners, you might say it was giving way to sin, but in Romans chapter 14, Paul's not talking about that. He's just talking about perceived sin, which is, in fact, Christian liberty. And so there was this tension. The Jews felt the Gentiles should observe certain days of the week, refrain from eating certain foods. And then on the flip side, the Gentiles wanted to have nothing to do with the idolatry of their former way of life. So they would not eat food offered to idols. And anyone that did, they felt that that was an abomination. None of these things are sin issues. They are all matters of conscience and liberty. And so what do you find? Well, behind Paul's instruction, behind his question, like verse 4, who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? Behind that instruction and question is the implication that this is what was happening in the church. Every week, the Jews would line up on this side of the sanctuary, and the Gentiles would line up on that side of the sanctuary, and they would point fingers at each other, saying, he ate something he shouldn't have eaten, he listened to something he shouldn't have eaten, she's wearing something she shouldn't wear. None of which are matters of sin, but they are all matters of preference without obvious moral implication. Many of the Christians today in the church still do this, right? We still do this. We believe, some of us, that the more restrictive you are, the higher your barriers, the the less you participate in the world, essentially, the more holy you are. Others on the other end of the spectrum, the extremes, have fallen into the misguided notion that the more worldly you are, then the more relevant your Christianity is to your neighbor. Right? So you have the hyper-restrictive Christian, and then you have the loosey-goosey, for lack of a better term, Christian. Right? Each of these have a potential to stumble over their own interpretation and they certainly aren't meeting in the middle when it comes to unity and diversity in the church. 
Now, as we jump into this, I'm grateful, okay? I'm grateful for passages like this from Romans and from the scriptures. Because what they do is they remind us that from the very beginning, Christians were bumping heads with each other, right? There was, there was, it, was, it was hard, right? You had different interpretations and different understandings and different levels of maturity and, and different convictions and you're rubbing elbows and you're doing life together, you're raising your kids together, you're serving side by side and you're, and you're, you're bumping into each other a little bit. And so when that happens among us, we should not think that, well, we have some kind of overt problem. We are simply the same as every church that has ever existed from the beginning. See, it's a complex spectrum of growth Christian faith is. And so for clarity, for unity, and for guidance, Paul offers us this, what you just saw a moment ago, number one, these principles for Christian liberty or the principles of Christian liberty. What are the principles that govern the exercise of Christian liberty? What are they? And how do we maintain unity with a disparity in our understandings? Well, this is great. Chapter 14, verse 1, through chapter 15, verse 13, there are four sections and four principles. The first of which we began to explore a few weeks ago. That's to accept one another with understanding. As for the one who is weak in the faith, welcome him. That's to say, accept him. Pull him in close to yourself. Not to quarrel, just accept him. Embrace him. Then we sought to understand what it means to do that with understanding. It's not to embrace him you know, full stop. It's to embrace him with a very clear understanding of what it is that you're doing and why. And so there were four aspects of this. We explored a few of them. Number one, God is the judge. We're to embrace and accept one another with understanding because God is the judge. Do not make matters of liberty into matters of salvation, Paul says. This is what was happening. If you eat this, if you drink that, if you look at this, if you go here, if you wear that, you're not saved. You must not be a real Christian. Real Christians only cut their hair a particular way or wear their dress a certain length. Real Christians don't do these things. In an effort to uphold the principles of modesty, now we begin teaching as doctrines the traditions of men, as Jesus said to the Pharisees. And Paul says, God's the judge. So the first aspect of that opening governing principle is that God is the judge. And the second one we explored is that we're to obey our conscience. Each one, Paul says, should be convinced in his own mind. The conscience is informed by the mind. The conscience is not informed independently from what you know. It is set in motion by the mind. And so you're to obey your conscience as you accept one another. But the conscience has to be taught, right? And so the, the phrase we're going to use as we consider the, the formation and information of our conscience is that faithfully taught, 
unadulterated, contextualized, spirit-affirmed text of Scripture. Faithfully taught, unadulterated, contextualized, spirit-affirmed text of Scripture. That's what should inform our minds, which then guides our conscience. It's not man's opinion. But that's where we see the conscience is tricky, right? The conscience can be over-informed, where that which is not sin is called sin. Your hair is too long, your dress is too short, right? Now that which is not sin is called sin, therefore your salvation is illegitimate. The one who is exceptionally and overly concerned with these external things that are not moral issues is the weak in the faith. They believe themselves to be strong because because it is easy to fall into the misguided notion that the more restrictive you are, the more holy you are. But in fact, these restrictions and these burdens that you put on yourself and onto others in a pharisaical manner are evidence of weakness, not strength. The strong is the one who can exercise his Christian liberty freely who knows the distinction between that which is sinful and that which is a matter of preference and can freely enjoy those matters of preference without concern. Meanwhile, the weak, with our giant barriers, are often miserable in our restrictiveness. And then Paul says what comes next is judgment of someone else who does not live by our barriers. In many cases, we simply have an over-informed conscience where that which is not sin is being called sin and then we call into question the salvation of another. The church in Rome, Paul informs us, were so busy pointing their fingers at one another that they had to be told by Paul, knock it off. Now on the flip side, a conscience that is under-informed, habitual sin is tolerated in the life of the believer unchecked. And so the conscience is not pricked where it ought to be. Each of you should be convinced in his own mind it's not relative morality, but rather the mind is to be renewed by the Spirit, Romans 12, 1 and 2, and then that renewed mind, reliably informed by the whole counsel of God's word, will correct an overactive conscience and it will instruct an underactive conscience. An unreliably informed conscience will lead to disharmony and legalism on one extreme or rampant runaway worldliness in the church on the other. So that's the second aspect of this accept one another. We gotta accept one another. He has to obey his conscience. You have to obey your conscience. Not to the point that we have different versions of Christianity. But how long the skirt is or how short the hair is, right? The third aspect is this phrase we find in verse 7. Do all as unto the Lord. Now, as we get into this third aspect, I want to remind us, friends, there are four principles, and each of them you can think of like a cube or, or even a die, like a, like a, a dice from a, a game, in that they each have 
multiple sides. So four principles, each cubes, each with various aspects. So we're exploring the third aspect of the first cube. Paul says, do all as unto the Lord. I love that, that very easy and famous verse from 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whether you eat or whether you drink or whatever you do. I love that. What, whatever you do, do it as unto the glory of the Lord. Do it as unto the Lord. So whatever you're doing, it can be done as unto the Lord. Well, that's Paul's sort of summary of the Christian life. Whatever you're doing, just do it unto the Lord. Now, the question is, can you sin as unto the Lord? No. So it takes that off the table, right? Have your affair as unto the Lord. No, it doesn't work. Non-moral issues. Do as unto the Lord. Eat, drink, fast, watch, listen, go, dress, wear, exercise, vacation, as unto the Lord. And where your conscience needs to prick you and say, this is out of bounds, it will. You see? And if we could all just like accept the fact that we're going to come to various different conclusions about these non-moral issues, then we're doing what Paul commands us to do in Romans 14. Accept each other with understanding. We know what we're doing. I fall on different places than you on various issues. But that's okay. I had, a, I had a tragic conversation with a church member several years ago now. And it was around an election season. And, and, and we spoke at length about the various candidates. And he says to me, I think the candidate you're, you're saying you're going to vote for is, is the Antichrist. And he wasn't kidding, okay? He's the Antichrist. And I said, well, I mean, I don't, I don't think so. <laughs> uh, uh, in fact, I'm, I'm more convinced that the party platform that you're promoting is closer to that of what would be described in the Bible as the Antichrist. Um, however, politics need not divide the church, right? I mean, you've got to vote according to biblical principles. How you vote in the ballot box should be consistent with the text of Scripture to the very best of your ability. There's going to be a compromise because Jesus isn't on the ballot. But to the best that you can, right? To the best that you can, you should pull that lever, which there aren't levers, but you get what I mean. And at the end of the day, we've got to understand, we might fall in different places here. Ever increasingly, this is becoming polarizing, but it ought not. And so I, I, I ended the conversation just saying, but you know what? Hey, man, it's okay. Our whole world is divided over this. Our whole nation is at each other's throats over this. But it doesn't have to be so among Christians, right? We're both, we're going to be sitting across the dinner table together in heaven, okay? Because we believe that Jesus is our Lord and Savior who rose from the dead on the third day. By grace through faith, we are saved, not by voting patterns. And so I said, so it's okay, man. But you know what? It wasn't okay with him. And he never spoke to me again. And it, and it broke my heart then and it breaks my heart now. Because a matter of Christian liberty, a matter of conscience and preference, turned into a matter of division. And Paul says in Romans 14, 
No. It ought not be. Do as unto the Lord. I appreciate even the preacher in Ecclesiastes 5. Behold, I have seen. What I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. (laughs) Find joy in your work. Find joy in a good meal. Because you know what? That's life. (laughs) I hate my job. That's life. Yeah? My steak is overcooked. That's life, right? It's but a vapor. This is your lot. So find joy in it. Now when you get more specific to matters of Christian liberty in practice, the one who fasts does so as unto the Lord, praying for clarity and maturity. The one who feasts thanks God for the good gifts of taste and smell and provision. But what happens? The one who is fasting looks down on the one who is feasting. If you were as spiritual as me, you'd be fasting, not feasting. And then the one who is feasting looks over at the one who is fasting who is obviously looking at him with with like scorn and judgment, right? And he's going, look, God gave us this to eat and enjoy. He made our taste buds. God made ribeye steak taste like that. I'm just saying. Right, blue cheese crumbles, a little butter, good sear, medium rare. And so he despises the one who condemns him. Meanwhile, feasting and fasting don't save you. Also, feasting and fasting are neither wrong. Neither of them save you, but neither of them are out of bounds. And so for you to feast is good, for you to fast is good. They don't save you, they're not sinful. They're both good when they're done as unto the Lord. If you want to microwave disharmony and division in the church, impose your personal convictions on everyone around you. Not only will you microwave disharmony and division in the church, but you'll also drive away everyone who would support you in a time of need. You'll be condemning those who would love you kindly when you lose your job or lose your pet or lose a family member. And you'll isolate yourself from any resemblance of loving Christian community. I have the, the, the greatest privilege uh, to, be, to be called a pastor. It is, um, it's the, it's the greatest joy, right? The, the overwhelming majority of Christians will not be pastors, right? That's just the numbers of it, right? There's going to be a lot more guys like me than there are church members, or else you'd have a really interesting sermon, wouldn't you? <laughs> It's a great privilege. It's a great joy. Um, but, it's, but it's also a terrible burden 
And that's why, that's why Paul writes and he says to the church, hey, don't, don't make the elder's job hard. That doesn't help you, right? They're, they're serving you. They're watching out for you. They're investing in you and caring for you. Don't, don't make their lives hard. Their lives are hard enough, right? <laughs> it's a terrible burden sometimes, right? And I, and I share this carefully because you guys love my family so well. And so it's not a burden to be the pastor of Hillcrest Baptist Church. What I mean simply is this. If you're going to be in this particular role, you're going to live through intimately all of the experiences of division and brokenness in your church family. All of them. You as a church member might only experience the one that somehow involves you but your elders are going to live through and experience intimately all of them. And so then when you walk through passages like this about brokenness and disunity in the church and how Paul says, here's the solution. Here's how you avoid these things. Here's how you heal these things. And you watch that instruction be ignored and you sit in another meeting and you listen to to reprehensible words come out of the mouths of one supposed Christian church member cast out onto another. It breaks your heart. And so I've watched all of these things happen, friends. I've watched them all. Driving away people who support you in times of need, condemning those who would otherwise love you kindly, isolating yourself from any resemblance of loving community. And then, and then, after you've done that, after you've imposed all of your barriers on others and driven everyone away who would otherwise love you, then, hypothetically speaking, your, your spouse passes away. But you've driven everyone away who would love you in that time of trauma. You see? It's not only that, friends, not only is it tragic when we do this to each other, but I've also noticed that the dogmatic, legalistic Christian who wants to impose their barriers on others, they they don't have any qualms about the lack of self-control in their own lives as they rail against a brother or a sister who they perceive to have violated some doctrine that is actually Christian liberty. In these moments, they're often given over to anger and pride and self-righteousness. These things that are obvious violations of Christian ethics, they're totally blind to those things. As they say, your hair is too long or your music preferences are too loose. Which is why the fourth and final aspect of this is simply that, verse 12, each of us will give an account of himself to God. Now, if I was one of these types, I would say, read this with me, right? Uh, Each of them will give an account of who? Yeah, I'm not one of those types, but it would be good to do it, right? Because the emphasis is there. Not just that each of us will give an account. You'll give an account for yourself, In fact, Ezekiel chapter 18 even says, parents, you won't give an account for your children. God takes each generation for themselves. 
You'll give an account how you raised them, but you don't give an account for how they responded to the faith. You'll give an account of yourself. And this ought to be of chief concern. And this is why I love the phrase that Jesus uses. He's such, a, he's such an excellent teacher. You know what I mean? Like, it's crazy. It's almost like he's God or something. Um, he uses that great metaphor, right? You're looking over at your brother and you're concerned about the splinter in his eye that is a, a, a moral or, or, a, or a, a dilemma of practice. You're concerned about his splinter. If you look in the mirror, you'll find you've got a log in your eye. How about you worry about the log before you go try to help him with his splinter? Now, there are layers to this instruction because, again, Jesus is a very good teacher. Number one, you will give an account of yourself and your log, not his splinter. Now, the only exception to that is the case of an elder who gives an account for how we oversee. And that's why elders are held to a higher standard of qualification, but you'll answer to God for yourself. So Paul says, spend your energy on that. Right? Uh, the second layer to this is just imagine the metaphor practically. Right? Put, put the scene together in your mind of like an operating room. And here's Dr. Jason Stamper, and he has a two-by-four sticking out from his head. A two-by-four-by-eight, pressure-treated, right? And he is going to lean down over you as you're on the operating table, and he's going to take a sharp utensil, a sterile tool of some sort, and he's going to lean over the table to delicately pluck the splinter from your eye. Do you see the image in your heads? Okay. What's going to happen? The one with the two by four is 100% more likely to injure the other with his issues than he is to help the one with the splinter with their issues. So the splinter is not helped, but in fact, you're doing more damage as you whack him in the face with your problems. That's what I'm saying. Jesus is a good teacher. And so Paul says, look, when it comes to accepting one another and maintaining unity among the diversity of Christian practice in the church, we've got to remember, you'll give an account for yourself. So live as though that is the case. Now, this is good motivation to pursue holiness, instead of tolerating worldliness. But secondly, live as though you will give an account to God for yourself and not your brother. Again, remembering all the while that this conversation is not about moral issues, but liberty issues. So that's the first principle. Accept one another with understanding. God is the judge. Obey your conscience. Make sure your conscience is biblically informed. Do all as unto the Lord, and remember that you will give an account for yourself and no one else but before God. This is how we accept one another with understanding. Now, by way of conclusion, I want to do this. Number two, a brief preview. Okay, that's literally the name of the sermon point, see? It's not very sophisticated, but it does get to the matter. A brief preview. The second principle is to build one another up without offense. Build one another up without offense. 
So you accept one another with understanding. You understand what we're doing. But also build each other up. Let's look at verse 13. Let us not pass judgment on one another any longer. Do you see what I'm saying? Stop it. Stop doing that. It was happening. Paul's saying, stop it. But rather, decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. That's active. That, that word, decide, that's a present, ongoing verb. In the Greek form, it's, an, it's a never stopping. It's not a once and done. It's an ongoing, present, active verb. You are to be regularly deciding, choosing, not responding, initiating action to avoid putting stumbling blocks and hindrances in the ways of your brother or sister. Now, I want to do this because this is the counterbalance to the entire first first point. Accept one another with understanding. We're going to come to different conclusions. Things need not divide. Get off each other's backs. Stop pointing your fingers. Stop judging each other. Conversely, you are to actively try with sensitivity and attention to not stumble your brother or sister with the exercise of your liberties. That's a very, that's a very different idea altogether. Jesus said in Matthew 18, whoever causes one of these little ones to, who believe in me to sin, whoever causes them to stumble, it would be better for them to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and drown in the depths of the sea. He wasn't just talking about children. He was. But he's also talking about children in the faith. Those who are weak. Those who are yet young. Those who are hung up on certain things that they maybe not need to be hung up on, but their conscience convicts them. You who are strong have an obligation to them. You have a duty. We must take great care not to offend one another. Especially not in the participation of sin, but specifically not in the causing of one another to stumble as we exercise our liberties. Here Paul sets up an an alternative. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer. So there's passing judgment on this side. Alternatively, instead, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block in or a hindrance in the way of your brother. Instead of looking down on another, seek to prefer one another. You might say it simply like this, stop judging and start serving. This is more than good advice. When it comes to something like the length of a boy's hair, the style of dress for a young woman, the translation of the Bible that is deemed fitting, so on and on and on, right? We are to seek the well-being of one another. And hence this amazing phrase in verse 15. If your brother is grieved by what you eat, look at this, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. 
Now, there is a lot to say about this principle. We're only scratching the surface today just to give the counterbalance to the argument. But let us recognize, friends, that genuine love is the chief goal of the church. Real love. Truly, biblically informed love that tells the truth, uh, that is warm and generous, serving and kind. Genuine love is the chief goal of the church. And when the exercise of liberty is done at the expense of another, in an uncaring, callous way, you're no longer walking in love, and the exercise of that liberty now violates the law of love, now it is sin. You see the layers, friends. You see how this is... And so even as you might be free to enjoy it as a liberty, you are not free to enjoy it at your brother's expense whose conscience does not allow him. To do so would be to sin. And so just quick hypothetical scenario. You might ask, so you mean I am free to enjoy a beer with dinner at a restaurant? Yes. As a matter of Christian liberty? Yes. But on the chance that I might bump into my brother in Christ who has strong convictions about this, now you're saying I can't have that beer with dinner at the restaurant. Yes. You see? This is why we're not in any hurry to get through this section. We have to wade through it. It's layered. Now it becomes sin because you enjoy it callously, uncaringly. You say, well, I don't know if he's going to be there. No, no, Paul says each of you decide. Active, ongoing, present tense. You decide. You proactively seek to protect your brother or your sister with what you wear, with what you say, with what you endorse, with what you indulge. You see? Like, it's complicated in a hurry, doesn't it? Because now it's not so much about my liberties being protected. These are my liberties, and I can enjoy them, and you can't tell me, and it's true. But as soon as we begin to exercise them in a way that is callous, uncaring, unconcerned about someone who we say is family, the family of God, my brother in Christ, now suddenly it is sin. And we're to be active about it. A great quote to close this brief preview on this from Sinclair Ferguson. The Christian who has to exercise his or her liberty is in bondage to the very thing he or she insists on doing. Hmm. Well, that's a good place to pause. We'll continue to explore this unity and diversity in the weeks to come as we continue in on that second principle, that second principle of Christian liberty. Friends, it's good that we explore these things because you know what doesn't save you? Eat, drink, clothing, music, These things don't save you, they don't condemn you. They are not the gospel, and when we 
turn Christianity into a list of do's and don'ts, we pervert the gospel and we begin to preach a different gospel altogether. No, friends, we are saved by faith through grace. It is a gift of God so that no one may boast. This is not the result of works. It cannot be earned, it cannot be bought. You can't even maintain it with your goodness. See, we are saved by grace and we walk in grace. We are upheld by grace. It is the Lord who makes us able to stand. And so as we explore these things, friends, let us remember the gospel is a sweet, sweet gift. And let us not pervert it with the imposition of regulation, but rather let us seek to love and serve each other. Evermore, um, as our minds are informed through these scriptures in Romans. Well, let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. And thank you that um, the verse is true. In it we find all things pertaining to life and godliness. These are not simply matters of ethereal thought experiments. No, Paul is helping us to live it practically by his instruction for us. These are very real problems that we face in the church as we try to live in harmony with one another as redeemed people trapped in unredeemed flesh. And so we ask again, just that you would help us. For Christ's sake and in his name we pray.